welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. I'm Derek Van Gorder. This week's topic is private UBI, basic income that's implemented independent from an existing government. We have guest Conrad Shaw joining us to discuss. Conrad is a longtime UBI advocate and researcher. He's recently joined a project called Comingle that's developing a UBI app. Tell us about this UBI app, Conrad. Thanks for having me. So Comingle is creating a sustainable and scalable guaranteed income for anybody who wants to participate. An online cooperative platform that pools a percentage of all its members' income each week to redistribute along a UBI-style model. The simple mechanics of it are every member chips in the same percentage of their income each week, and this funds what's called the commingle pool. The pool is then divided into equal shares and returned to everyone as a universal dividend. So everyone puts in the same percentage of their income and gets back the same amount. The lower one's income compared to the average in a given week, the more of the dividend one keeps. The higher one's income, the more someone contributes to the general well-being of the group. It's solidarity and community and egalitarianism in an app. Essentially, it's a redistributive model where income goes from people above the average income to below the average income. The more inequality within a group, meaning the median income, the further it is below the mean income, the more effective it will be. I also want to mention that we're also seeking to create not only a viable, transparent, and ethical business, but an engine for social good. What I mean is, as we grow to scale, we're also looking to develop into a hyper-efficient tool for disaster aid, foreign aid, and philanthropic giving, as well as increasingly providing more services for free to all of Comingle's members by redirecting excess revenue at scale towards those things. If I understand correctly, it sounds a little bit like an insurance system. Everybody's putting a certain percentage of their income into the app, and then everybody's getting out a certain flat amount. If your percentage is higher than the flat amount, then you put in more than you get out. And if your percentage of income is lower than the flat amount, then you get out more than you put in. Is that right? There's a few differences. It's like a much more automated, simplified sort of insurance, like a community insurance. There's definitely triggering events, which would mean you get more of the benefit in general, which is you have less income, but there are no bureaucratic steps to apply, right? A lot of people do certain money sharing pools and things like that, where people agree as a group and they put a certain amount of their money into this fund. And then if they have a rainy day or they want to invest in something, they sort of apply to the group and say, here's what I want it for. This is more like week in, week out, all the money transfers. It's just a simple redistribution at the moment. And none of the money actually stays in an account. And there is no application process to say, I want to collect this week. You just, you get what you get every single week. Okay. Can you leave at any time? I mean, what prevents someone from, say, entering in with a low income and drawing a lot, and then when they get rich, they just quit? Nothing prevents someone from quitting. What we do have in place is something that prevents people from rejoining easily. If someone wants to join while they're in trouble and leave when they have a decent amount of income, that's more power to them. But we'll have some combination of a process of wait two years before you can join again and maybe have to buy back in. If we look at the last two years of income and say, oh, you made a million dollars in the last two years and now you're on sabbatical and you want to collect again. If you want to join in again, you got to make up for the time that you ditched the group because that's against the ethic of the idea. It makes it a little bit more like an insurance system that way. 
Mm -hmm. So yeah, there will be definitely things we do to mitigate fraud and certain types of undesirable behavior. But another part of commingle is the ethic of the community we're creating. We're hoping we'll minimize the amount we have to deal with that sort of thing. We're creating something where we're actively going to be seeking to make people feel connected to each other, obligated to each other, cared for by the group. One story that comes to mind is something that gives me more hope in human nature is the winter shakers. Someone was telling me about the winter shakers. And the shakers is, to my limited understanding, a religious group, you know, the barn raising sort of community. They share all their produce together, communal style living, and they'll let anyone in. Anyone can join. There's a thing that happens from time to time where people will join in the wintertime and collect the harvest. When spring comes around again, they'll leave and avoid working on the harvest. The shaker's response to that is not to shut down their giving freely, but to assume one, if someone's doing that, they probably really needed the help. And two, it's an edge case in general. It doesn't affect us enough to want to change the way we do things. Our main focus will be on keeping things honest at a level where any stepping outside of that is temporary and not something that would affect the larger group, but also lean really hard into this is a community you're joining, that sort of messaging. This is a we are all in it together sort of thing. That sounds like a nice ideal to strive for, for sure. Are you anticipating that when you launch the system, a lot of low-income people, thousands of people from Africa will join right away? How do you imagine that playing out? When you launch the first things that are going to happen, what are they going to be? I'm super curious. We already have a niche that's natural in America that's not necessarily all unemployed people. We have the whole Yang gang or the UBI community that isn't just people with no income. There's a lot of reasons people support it and they support it very strongly and they want to be part of something. That said, commingles mechanism grows stronger the more diverse the population in terms of income range. If the entire population is extremely low income, it doesn't hurt the members because we'll just be shuffling around zero dollars each week. It'll just make commingle unviable. It was very important to us to make sure that it would never hurt the members. But in order for it to have a higher impact and benefit for the people in need and for commingle to be viable, we want people from all the way at the low end of the spectrum to fairly high up the spectrum. We don't need billionaires and millionaires, but we need a healthy diversity. If the membership can parallel the U.S. economy right now, we should end up with something around $60 a week in a dividend as a guarantee. It should benefit on the net 60 to 65 percent of people. That's before we include the possibility of external philanthropic funds and subsidies coming from other places, which we'll also seek. The question is, what if a bunch of people just pile on with zero income because it's like, hey, free money? There's a few ways we can maybe deal with that. I think when we get to scale, it's less of an issue because when we have thousands of members, it doesn't matter even if a billionaire comes or goes, it doesn't make much of a dent. But early on, if we don't get people of income, that's an issue. A lot of it will be leaning into the sort of messaging that we need to attract people above a certain income line and show them value. A lot of it will be the way we deliver that messaging, both in statistics and stories to make it apparent that this is something you want to give to. There are a lot of people in this country that'll give 10% of their income as a philosophy to charity. One of the things we're going to lean into is that commingle is going to have a greater ROI per impact than anything else, right? There's no other philanthropy, charity, or government program that I know that comes anywhere even close to the sort of efficiency we'll have, which is on the order of 98 to 99% of every dollar goes to people who need it more. It goes immediately and it goes without 
bureaucracy or burden. That certainly becomes even more true the higher percentage of no income or low income people you have in the system as well. Yeah. And the worse the inequality, the more it'll be a direct impact from those above and those below. But what we really are hoping and going to be pushing for is more of a smooth demographic scale of incomes across the range. If we have to, we'll consider some sort of maybe a waitlisting sort of mechanism to make sure that as we build to a sustainable scale, we have, say, a pegged minimum dividend that it doesn't go below, right? We don't bring in the next thousand people with zero income until we get another hundred people averaging 50,000 or more keep the dividend over $20 or something like that. There's ways to make sure that it can build to a viable and sustainable scale without just hoping for the I actually like that idea. You have a mechanism in place in case of the overflow intake problem occurring. So that makes sense to me. Two-part question. One, how did you arrive at the 7% figure as opposed to some other figure? And two, how do you make sure that that occurs? Is there an app that checks people's income? And if so, how do you know that someone doesn't have another bank account somewhere and isn't giving you their full 7%? Is that something you worry about or is it just honor system? No, we've got a system. Honor is involved and we'll be pushing it, but we also have a system for keeping track. We picked 7% as a good starting point that felt to us like not an intimidating percentage for people who care about getting involved in this sort of an idea. 7% of your income, especially when you're getting a lot of it back, is not a lot. Tithes are regularly 10% in religious communities. Taxes are much more than 7%. So 7% is small enough to not be that scary to people, especially considering to even be giving in more than 6% on the net. You would have to be making over a quarter million dollars per member, an individual over a quarter million dollars probably would be putting in over 6%. But you'd have to be making well over $100,000 even be putting in a couple of percents. That'll become more apparent when people begin and they sign up because they sign up in preview mode, which is also how we'll be doing beta testing. Preview mode is you link up your bank accounts and we run everything as a hypothetical, as a calculation. And you can basically use commingle in the same way, except no money is actually transacted. You get to watch what your theoretical contributions would be each week and what you'd be getting back in the dividend. You get to see the dashboards about how this affected the community, how many people were raised above the poverty line, how many people were net beneficiaries. And you can do that indefinitely definitely until you decide you want to join in. Now, the way we make sure that we're not missing people's bank accounts or they're hiding it from us or anything like that is through soft credit pulls. If somebody signs up and they're a net recipient, then we'll do a soft credit pull to make sure they don't have another bank account somewhere where they're actually getting their paycheck or they have huge dividends coming in from a trust fund or something like that. And what is a soft credit pull? There's two types of credit pulls, a soft credit check or a hard credit check or pull. The hard credit pull is the one that dings people's credit. And it's like when you're applying for a lease or something for an apartment, they check on your finances to make sure you can pay. A soft credit pull is a less I guess, severe version of it, as I understand it, but it's enough to get a good sense of people's, what different accounts they have. If they have extra accounts, when we do a soft credit pull and we say, it seems like you're a net recipient and you're not divulging all of your accounts, you cannot begin until you link them all up so that we make sure you actually should be receiving on the net and you're not gaming the system. One thing we've decided in general to encourage more people of higher incomes to join is we're not going to be super diligent in doing things like soft credit pulls on people who are already going to be net contributors. Bill Gates signs up and he wants to keep a certain account from us in the Caymans or something, but he ends up putting in a million dollars a week. We're not going to really give him a hard time. 
that's sort of an extreme example. I was thinking of that because obviously what helps your system a lot is if people who are on the tail end of extreme high earners join and contribute. And it strikes me that you would be flexible, right? I mean, if someone who's a billionaire wants to pay 6% or 5% of their income instead of 7 in the way you might more donate as you wish to a traditional charity, that would be beneficial to the system. And so I'm wondering why not try to find a way to allow the big fish to encourage them to contribute in whatever capacity they're able to. Well, that can also fall under the umbrella of the philanthropic contributions too, right? Like Bill Gates doesn't need to sign up to be part of the system. He can just put a certain amount of money in that goes to everyone. That'd be a separate thing. Oh, is that part of it? Yeah. If someone wants to be part of the system, they can do that. But also part of our growth strategy is to engage different initiatives and local efforts what we're really creating is the pipeline that a UBI system in America would create. Like when COVID happened or when a hurricane happens and everyone's sitting around waiting six months for a check or for FEMA to get into gear. If we had a UBI system in place, we could have dropped money in people's accounts the next day. What we're really creating is a UBI system that's permanent and sustainable in theory because it's not funded externally by philanthropic dollars or by government funds. It's funded by the members themselves. There's enough strength. Our motto is strength in numbers among the membership to keep maybe a 50 or $60 dividend a week guarantee going. But on top of that, we can layer on as much philanthropy as we want. And what we can also do, since we'll check people's identities, we'll have their zip codes, we can target it as people would want. Someone could throw a billion dollars into the overall American pool, or you know, we get another hurricane in New Orleans and people have the option to contribute straight to that. And anyone in New Orleans who signs up will have an extra amount allotted to them each week as sort of a recovery fund that's 10 times as efficient as any other help that they get today. So what counts as income? If, say, I'm getting $200 a month from my mom and that's my only income, does that count as income? On my tax return, it wouldn't. Asking for a friend. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of the main things we're going to be looking at in beta testing, which we're leaning into soon. For example, if you're on a lease and you're subletting, right? Or you have roommates and you're the one on the lease or something like that, and someone pays you and then you pay the landlord, you don't want them paying you to be taxed, essentially, by the commingled tax, I guess, or tithe, whatever you want to call it. There are ways in the financial tools that are out there in the fintech world through Plaid and things like that, ways that things are tagged as this is a regular paycheck that you might see a W-2 for, or this is a dividend from a capital gain or something like that. But one of the things that we're going to be looking at really closely is, are we collecting the right income? Are we missing some of the right income? We want to be collecting employment income. We want to find a way through this beta testing to differentiate between taxed employment income and pre-tax employment income so that we're just taking 7% of post-tax income. We want to take dividends and capital gains as income. I had a very interesting conversation with some people who have done a lot of work with UBI and with benefits and things like that. People who ran trials and dealt with those situations sort of validated what I was feeling, which is what if someone's getting some sort of cash benefit from the government, something that our system might pick up and want to take 7% of. The moral question here is similar to the one where it's like, should UBI replace these things, essentially? And what we came down upon was lean into maximum transparency. So let people know what is possible and what it might mean for their benefits and let people make the choice for themselves. In most cases, with the efficiency of a UBI system, it'll be worth it to people. 
in terms of giving up some of one benefit to get another and thinking that's not fair, I always look at the situation with the four out of five people that should be getting TANF, temporary assistance for needy families, who just didn't qualify or are still waiting or should be getting disability. So it's even in some degree a redistributive model between the people who our current system helped out some and the people who our current system left out hanging. If the population demographic is a good one, is a good robust one, then it won't look like the person on disability is giving money to the person with nothing. It'll look like the person on disability or TANF or whatever is getting less net boost a week than the person who has absolutely nothing coming in. To me, that seems fair as long as we let people make that choice and make it really clear in part through the preview mode, people can see exactly what they'll be getting and who it's going to. Okay. I want to go to Bethany. She has a few points that she wants to bring up. The very first thing to bring up is, do you see this primarily being funded by altruism, which means that people would generally have fairly stable incomes who are above the mean and be giving in most of the time? Or do you see this primarily functioning as a risk pooling mechanism or an insurance mechanism where most of the people have variable incomes? They're doing this to have some security. They give sometimes, they don't give other times. To follow up on that question, I have different questions depending on which thing you think will dominate. If you think it's going to be this risk management thing, I'm wondering how do you find the people who are in that kind of situation and make sure to attract them to this platform? I tend to see people more who have stable incomes, but that doesn't mean there isn't some substantial pool of people who don't. I'd just be curious how you find them. Maybe I'll stop there, but then I have some follow-up points if you think it's going to be driven more by altruism. We certainly won't be leaning into altruism or charity sort of messaging so much as solidarity, so much as being part of a community, being part of something that works for everyone. I think a lot of the reason people are very skeptical of things like tax dollars going to whatever it may be is that they don't see the results. So part of what we're doing is essentially creating a little government that has a very specific purpose and does it super efficiently and transparently so that people buy in to the idea of that governance. Let me be more specific because the messaging is very important, but it's different from what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the finances of it. What I mean by altruism is people are net giving across time. There are two different options you could imagine. It's entirely made up of people with stable incomes. Some of those people are above the mean and some of them are below. So some are always drawing and some are always giving. That's the altruism version that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. The insurance version at the other end of the spectrum, everybody has the same mean income over time, like over five years or something, but they're varying a lot. Sometimes I'm in need, sometimes I'm not. I'm net at zero, but I have this nice risk management happening where when I am in need, I get money. And when I don't, I put it in. I'm interested in this because I think the motivations could be quite different depending on which of those is predominant, which basically comes down to how stable people's incomes are when they're in your system. So that's what I mean, not the messaging per se. I think we're going to have to wait and see. You know, it's the sort of thing that's really, really hard to predict. But the way we're designing this is as if it could be either. Mm -hmm. Okay. If we're going to make a guess is that it'll be both to the degree that essentially represents the American population. We have sort of four different quadrants of incomes and people that we're going to be marketing this to, and everyone falls into those categories. One is people with just no income or very low income on a consistent basis. That won't take a lot of marketing dollars because it looks like extra money. We'll still want to get the messaging out there so they get the right idea that this is here to help you, but this is also something you're joining that you help back when you get ahead. Then there's people with low income inconsistently, that it's more of like a cushion over the months. Maybe you have some sort of freelance work. There's people with high income, but it's inconsistent. 
it's smoothing out the peaks and valleys of income. And then there's people who have consistently high income. If they want to think of it as altruism or if they want to think of it as being part of something, sure. But we're going to be pushing most of our intention and messaging towards attracting the third and fourth groups. And your guess is as good as mine, honestly, about what it's going to be, especially at the beginning, because the way things get picked up and the way things grow is so affectable by news coverage or how something is memed online or something. We're going to be trying to push the messaging in such a way that it is attractive to the people and push the features and the data and the things we share such that all of those cases are coming across to the people who need to see it. Yeah, I think it makes sense that all of those people are going to be in the system at all times. They're going to be people who are using it as insurance. They're going to be people who just want to be givers. And they're going to be people who just want to be takers. You'd see a combination of all of that. Bethany, do you want to follow up? Yeah. So thanks. That's helpful. And I agree. It might be hard to know. Since I study psychology and especially altruism, I'll just follow up with three challenges I could see you guys facing in case that's helpful for you guys to think about. The first challenge is that among people who are willing to end up giving a good percentage of their income, a lot of them are very attached to other kinds of things, their church, or they have some kind of family member who died of the disease. There's just a lot of things already pulling people's giving. This is a pretty substantial amount for some people of their income. How do you pull that into your project? A second challenge is that there are some people really into thinking about how to give in the most effective way. You've pointed out that you don't have a lot of overhead costs, which is good for those people. But those people might also be interested in things like saving as many lives per dollar as possible. So they can be attracted to things like malaria nets in Africa that just have that kind of return. Reaching the effective altruist group might be another set of challenges in terms of arguing that, especially if your dollars are going to Americans, because they like the trade-off of a dollar is just worth more in other countries. That could be something to think about. And then the third challenge has to do is just when you're learning from or comparing to groups that are in person, like the shakers, I think it's important to be careful that there are some important differences. And some of those differences are that the in-person groups often impose costs that make it less likely that people take advantage of the group. You mentioned the shakers and it was uncommon for people to just join in the winter and then leave. That could have been because to be a shaker, you had to be celibate. You had to follow a whole bunch of rules, even just for a period of time. That might have been too costly for a lot of people. You had to get up and go and live there. That's a yeah. cost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With other communities that can be even stricter, you might have to invest for years in learning rules and doing all sorts of things. So there are often these mechanisms to prevent people from taking more than they give on average. And that can happen in person. It's obviously not really happening in the same way in your group. And then there might be benefits that attract people to giving in some ways because they're getting all these social benefits of living in the community and stuff like that. In terms of challenges that you face as this online platform that isn't an in-person community, how do you address what in-person communities have had to address forever, which is trying to avoid people on average not wanting to take more than they give and how to do that in this particular thing? In terms of people being attached to other forms of giving, say someone gives 5% or 10% of their money, why are they going to take such a significant percent of their giving and do it through commingle? That's one of the things we really want to lean into in our dashboards and our presentation of the data is how much more effective it is dollar for dollar. We've been able to point to studies and things like that with UBI trials, but people don't read white papers so much. One thing we can point to is if we have a population of 10,000 people and we can say, hey, 1,500 went from below the poverty line to above the poverty line. This many people were net beneficiaries. This was the net change in inequality as measured by the Gini coefficient of the group, right? We can actually show that data, which is especially compelling to large foundations and things like that, but also big givers. The other thing is we want to lean into the ability for people to share their stories. Does it look like someone saying, hey, we kept the lights on this week. We didn't get evicted. I was able to take a breath, look for another job, and now I'm chipping back in. Or, hey, I was starting a business. I just sold it. Thank you, everyone, for helping me keep afloat while I started the business. People respond to different sort of things. 
you lean into that sort of messaging and that sort of community and you are building in an intrinsic value, almost like is built in with say shakers or a religious group or an identity community where people feel connected to it, they feel ownership, then the cost of not fulfilling your obligation is losing that group. If you jump out because you made a little money, you can't get back in for two years. As we build this thing out and add more free services, we want to have financial tools and free online banking and things at scale that are just member services. That's more and more you lose out on. In terms of giving the most effective way, I mean, there's always this push and pull between do I give to Africans or do I give to Americans? And well, we're poor here, we're poor there, and the money goes further there. I'm a big fan of what organizations like GiveWell are trying to do with ranking the effectiveness of your charity dollar for dollar. I think that's a good example that you bring up because it reminds me of Give Directly. Give Directly came onto the scene in, I think it was 2013 or something like that, basically presenting direct cash giving, UBI pilots and things like that. They were sort of laughed out of the room and all the fundraising and they went out and did it anyway. Not very long later, anyone who wants to do foreign aid finds themselves having to benchmark themselves against what direct cash giving would accomplish. Certain things need more than direct cash giving. They need some sort of in-kind stuff. But what they've clearly shown is there is a huge space in philanthropic giving for direct cash giving. And we want to lean into that further by making it far more efficient even than they have been able to, because they're dealing with setting things up in places where they have to have boots on the ground in you know, Kenya or Namibia or things like that. We're starting in America because there's already a banking system in play. Long-term, the vision is to go international, start commingles in different currencies in different countries, and then even redirect the revenue if we're at that scale, which will be significant, toward endowing commingles in places that can't fund a sufficient income for themselves. The 1% that commingle takes at that sort of scale could effectively end poverty in large areas. The idea is to eventually create a system and a structure that ties everyone together. Okay, so you mentioned that commingle, in a sense, is a little bit like a mini specialized government that provides this basic income service and perhaps some other community benefits. Do you imagine that essentially what you're doing is creating kind of a political community with commingle and then the 7% that you put in is almost like a tax that you pay for being a member of the community? Is that how you're thinking about it? That's one very reasonable way to think about it. I try not to lean into that too much because of the triggers that people get around the words like government and taxes right now. Sometimes I'll say tithes, but people are sometimes triggered by religion as well. Religion and government are basically versions of systems of community for people to join together their power and their resources in a way that they hope will redistribute them and use them well for the good of the community. And it's debatable how well certain organizations, governments, religions do. There are parallels you can make between what we're creating here. You could say we're creating a religion that's a humanist religion that believes that everyone gets a certain amount. And the doctrine is a tithe of 7% redistributed without anyone's particular paternalistic say to everyone in the group, right? I saw an interview you gave once, and I liked what you said because you said that basic income is something the government should be doing, but because they're not, you're taking it private. So you can kind of think of what you're doing as a virtual government. And there's sort of an admission, I think an implicit admission in what you're doing that's like, well, ideally established currency managers and governments would be doing this, right? And you guys are just sort of, it's a stopgap. It's filling that gap, right? Yeah. If the government did it tomorrow, we wouldn't really have a reason to, unless we were taking it international to other places that didn't have it. But if we had UBI worldwide, or if inequality was solved to a degree where we ended poverty, it was a fair system of inequality that people were okay with, however you want to define that, 
we become less and less meaningful as an organization. We become obsolete when inequality is no longer a thing, but that's fine with me. And I don't think it's coming anytime soon. So yeah, we're leaning into this as sort of a workaround in understanding that the government is slow. The government is cynical and members of the government have certain obligations that create an inertia against the kind of change that is needed to help people here and now. So we can achieve that. I get what you mean by that. You're filling in that need that's not being met. You say inequality is a problem that this addresses. And I think that's a little tricky because I imagine the Gini coefficient of your community, if you just get started and you have only poor people in that, is not very high. And then when you add a bunch of billionaires in who are giving in a larger percentage technically, right, inequality would look worse, right? Exactly. It would look worse, but people are less poor, right? I don't know if that's something you're taking into account. What we're measuring is the change in inequality. If we have a population of a million people with all zero income, there's no inequality in that situation and there's no reason for us to exist. If we have 10,000 people sign up who are all making $100,000 a year, there's no reason for us to exist. So maybe you could say you're looking at inequality in society as a whole, even though a properly functioning commingle system would have inequality within the system, by virtue of the operation of that system, it reduces society level inequality. Is that the idea? Yeah, the actual... Functional effect of what we're doing with commingle is to directly reduce inequality. That's it. It doesn't say it gets rid of inequality. It's 7%, you know? Right. You would get rid of all inequality if it was 100%. Well, that makes sense since it's a straight up redistribution that you're reducing inequality. Yeah. Would you say that reducing inequality is the goal of commingle? Or would you say that's just one of the things that happens as it operates? I think it's one of the goals. It's one of the things that happens. It's just like UBI itself as an idea. Everyone has a different goal or a reason and they're all right. You know, do we want to give people a buffer in the hard times like the social insurance or do we want to give people room to breathe, to pursue their dreams or just to reduce their stress? Or do we want to have a higher level of equality across the group? Or do we want to have more community? They're all correct. It's one of the very important reasons. And it's the most mathematically measurable, I would say, just measuring the income inequality of the group. So you mentioned that there might be different commingles going, different commingle groups going in different regions. Are you imagining that you would kind of set up from the top down different commingles for different countries in different regions, or maybe different currency zones or something like that? Or are you imagining that maybe people might want to set up their own commingles based on whatever parameters? I don't think we're going to be eager to let people change around the parameters a lot. One of the things you gave me in one of the questions was this group I hadn't heard of yet that had a similar idea called group income. And they seem to be a lot more both vague and complicated at the same time as a similar ethic, but everyone can create their own little commingle group with whoever they want and admit entry, create their own constitution. That seems like a pretty hard thing to pull off to me. I'd be interested to see how they would do it. I would keep the same ethic of ultra simplicity across. One of the things we do want to do is transfer ownership and power and decision-making as much as possible to the members over time. We're starting at 7% in America. One of the things we do want to do is grow it if it shows itself to be working very well and people want that. Maybe we put it up to a vote on a regular basis of some sort and require a supermajority, like 90% of people have to approve so that even a significant chunk of people who are giving in like the idea of raising it from 7% to 8% or 10% or something like that. Another idea is potentially doing sort of a tiered system where of your 7%, 1% is going to a national level and we're all in this pool at the national level and then state levels and county levels. These choices are going to depend a lot on what the American people respond to. And over time, we're hoping to push people towards a more we're all in this together sort of thing 
where most of the focus is going as large of a scale as possible. Now, when we get to international, if we're going to open up a co-mingle in France, maybe it looks like what are they comfortable with? Where do they want to start and start them there, but under the same sort of mechanism? The simplicity of the mechanism, I think, is the thing that's got to hold true, which is everyone gives in the same percent and gets back the same amount. Okay. So an important difference then you're highlighting between what Comingle is doing versus Greg Slepak's group income idea is that you guys would set the parameters and everyone in a region would kind of be invited to join or subject maybe to a wait list or something like that. You'd want to grow to cover the general population or a reflection of the general population rather than having individual groups of people kind of come together and set up their own parameters for redistributing among themselves. The goal is to be truly universal. We want to open it up so anyone with a bank account can join. And then longer term, we want to make it easier for everyone to get a bank account so they can join and have a simple system where it feels like you don't have to find friends or a certain group or be in a certain area to qualify. You qualify at first because you're an American, but then because you're just a human being. Taking out these barriers of like, okay, you have to find a bunch of people who are willing to do this with you, draft a constitution, these sorts of things could work for certain purposes, but I'm looking for something more broad scale that can be accessible by anyone. When I ran a UBI trial for our docu-series, people had all these ideas about how to do it, you know, use cryptocurrency or give it monthly or weekly or give cards. And my driving ethic in all of it was just completely reduce all burden to the recipients or the participants. It should be the sort of thing where you have an account, it drops in there once a week is what we ended up doing. And no one has to think about it. The second people have to think about it, then it's a project. It's not money to live, it's money to work on the project, right? That makes sense to me on the efficiency angle and as opposed to making it totally decentralized and kind of leaving it up to people. Everyone's free today to start their own basic income community, but that's not really working out. So you want to actually provide a service that helps it along. I get that. I do think that some of those issues you want to decide in advance, right? Like Bethany asks in the chat, you know, are you open to adjusting the percent level, the income level, if it's too high or too low to attract people, right? Yeah. That's a very, very different way of looking at it versus saying, oh, it's open democratically and people will vote on it, right? Because maybe they'll vote for a percentage of income that scares away too many people and is not optimal, actually, and actually makes everybody worse off. I think that might be something to figure out in advance. Absolutely. That's a big part of what we're going to be doing with beta testing is just how does this feel? Early beta testing will be in preview mode. Later beta testing will be with actual money transacting. How does it function? How does it feel? How does it affect the group? Not just how is usability, were you able to dispute certain types of incorrect transactions or whatever, but is this something that helps you feel part of something that you feel is rewarding to you, whether you're giving or receiving? Is 7% something that's scary? And then over time, once we get to scale, I don't see us being very eager to reduce the percentage and kind of go backwards, but I see us being very flexible in how it can grow. Early on, if 7% is not bringing in people enough, absolutely, we'll pick a number that'll prove the product. Makes sense. But seven's our best guess right now as something we can get away with. We can get a big enough niche. If we get even a tenth of the Yang Gang to be like, this is cool, let's try it. That's plenty of people to prove the idea, right? But if it doesn't attract them, we'll absolutely adapt until we can prove the model. Wow. If we could get a tenth of the Yang Gang to listen to this podcast, that would be amazing. So you mentioned getting Comingle to scale. My question is, imagine that commingle really takes off to the point where everyone in the United States is in the commingle and they're all participating in the system, redistributing 7% of their income evenly to everyone. Would you imagine that at that point you will have solved the main problems that basic income solves that, you know, maybe it would be nice if the government took it over because then it's the official government doing it, but it's essentially solving the same problem? 
with caveats, I think if everyone was theoretically joined in, it would solve a lot of those problems, not at 7%. Basically what we're modeling here, if there's no extra dollars or anything, is a flat tax of 7% funding a UBI directly, right? Quote unquote funding. I know you have issues with that idea. What that really amounts to is about $60 a week, and that's below poverty line in the US. One of the things we'd want to do over time is grow that either through more of the flat taxing mechanism. Once we've shown that it's actually a very progressive mechanism when attached to a UBI model, that and also things to represent other forms of subsidy and taxation, like direct contributions from big foundations or corporations trying to like improve their image or something. If people drop in a billion dollars or whatever into this fund for the whole community, that boosts everyone's dividend however much. If we got to a point where the effective dividend was $1,000 a month and every American was doing it, then absolutely. I think it would solve a lot of the same problems and it would be a real case study. One of the things I'm very excited about is even if we get to 1,000, 10,000 users and we keep it going for an extended amount of time, we'll be running the largest partial basic income trial in history. And it has a chance of being truly universal in that anyone can join and that it doesn't have an end date and it doesn't rely on finding funds from the wealthy. Yeah, I think you were alluding a little bit to maybe why I asked this question in terms of the financing. For me, part of the problem that basic income solves is the problem of where does the economy get its money? And if you're just doing a pure redistribution, it doesn't really address that question. So commingle is a pure redistribution. If the government were doing a pure redistribution with taxes and that's how they were doing the basic income, then that feels like the analogy to me. That does feel like an appropriate analogy. I understand what you're working with, with CMIs. Is that what you call it? CMT. CMT. There's still tremendous value in a funded UBI, in a redistributive mechanism, in directly combating inequality. It's not as easy on a political basis to sell something like this. If Andrew Yang had said, hey, I'm doing $1,000 a month, everyone's going to get 35% slapped on top of their taxes. While that would actually... (laughs) If it could pass, bring about a much healthier economy in the U.S. as I see it, you would never pass that, and I wouldn't want to do it that way. It would be a silly way to do it. But it's still very worthwhile to have this sort of discussion and analysis, and that's part of the reason we're keeping it at 7% and not 35%. We want to find a level of sort of a flat tax mechanism that feels good to the people, and then we can turn to the government and say, hey, do it like this, or top us up, or whatever, or top up people on your own, and make this percentage of it funded by a flat tax to help get it through the political channels you need to and help it look like there's less deficit spending, that kind of stuff. There's so much that can be done with just the evidence that we'll be able to produce from this model. Well, I sort of get it because you have a constraint. Your constraint is you're not the U.S. government. You're not issuing currency. If you sort of accept that as a, okay, this is what we're working with, then we have to come up with some way of getting the money. It makes sense to me that you're looking at it that way. Sort of implicit in that is the rejection of alternative, or at least you're, you're taking a different approach than other ways people talk about this. There's other people who have different concepts for private sector UBI, and some of them are in the digital or alternative currency space, innovation space, or the cryptocurrency space. I'm just curious, have you dealt with that at all? Did you think about that? Have you looked at those proposals? And what do you think of that side of the debate? in general. Yeah, I've dealt with that a lot. I've been fundraising for UBI projects for the last four years. I know really well the situation where you talk about this thing you're doing here and now with cash or with a film or whatever. People that come from a lot of money and are used to investing in venture capitalism type things turn to crypto. They're like, crypto is the future. Crypto is the future of money, the future of aid, the future of help, and maybe so. But I have two different reactions to that. One is, show it to me now 
right? What crypto has enough buy-in that say I was running the UBI trial I ran for our docu-series on it, that the homeless person we set up with a basic income could actually spend it at the store. I want something that people can use for whatever they want. Crypto right now is a massive restriction on the people who need it the most. They have to learn how to use a crypto wallet and they have to find places that'll accept it. It's just not feasible. My reaction when it comes to crypto efforts is that I hope they work long-term, but trying to limit the success of a UBI proposal to the idea that you also have to gain the success of a new currency is just taking something that's already really hard to do and multiplying it by something that's already really, really hard to do. The people that are pushing that in my cynical moments, I feel like maybe they're trying to just be in control of the next big currency as a moonshot idea for being, you know, the next kings of the universe. And in my more generous moments, I think they're coming from enough of a place of privilege that they're ready and willing to wait for 10 or 15 years before anyone actually gets helped. I've seen all these different programs and basically they build up a lot of buzz about how their new crypto UBI is going to help a lot of people and you can sign up and get some now. And then they spend the next however long until today trying to convince people for it to take off. And the most I've seen is after getting a certain one for a year, there was like a month period where they had a deal with someone where I could buy a box of Annie's mac and cheese and then the value dropped to zero. If you can make this work, if you can make a cryptocurrency work, great, but don't make UBI wait for crypto. What we're trying to do is create essentially a framework and a model so that just like we're going to hopefully go international into other currencies overseas in the long term, we'll be able to switch to a crypto. I've heard good arguments for doing this with crypto, actually. I was extra cynical until someone told me about or reminded me that there are certain places all over the world where they don't have access to streamlined banking systems. If you want to get money to someone in Rwanda, you have to get it to them on their cell phone with a dollar-backed cryptocurrency like CUSD or something like that. So that's something that we would seriously look at as needed or as the opportunity presents itself. But we're not going to hedge the entire success of the idea of UBI and our operation on digital currency. I think you were referring to the MANA crypto UBI system there. And I love those guys. I bought a couple packets of trail mix, like tiny little personal sized packets of trail mix with my MANA from the MANA store. I just told myself because it's global, I'll wait until it's viable yeah. and then I'll transfer it all because they said one of their features is they're going to be able to transfer it to people in another country. Right. So if it's worth 60 bucks to me, it's worth $60,000 in Kenya. So I'll just ship it over there. Yeah, there you go. I just sat around and didn't do anything for it, but I'm waiting and hoping that they turn it into value for people that need it so that I can do that. Well, yeah, so we're getting towards the end. The topic of private basic income is very interesting to me because as I think everybody here knows, back in 2015, I designed a government independent basic income system called the Gresham system, which I still feel would work if it ever got implemented. But yeah, I mean, there's this problem where governments aren't doing this thing that I think all of us agree that they really should be doing. They should be paying out a basic income to the people. And then we don't want to wait necessarily for the governments to come around or to what extent can we push them to come around by providing an alternative or just leapfrogging them all together. And I think that what you're doing is in that vein with commingle. I think that although obviously you mentioned some of Alex's ideas earlier, there's differences in how we maybe think about basic income, but actually your project is sort of similar in that you're paying attention to the fact that established currencies are working in the world today. And rather than sort of reinventing the wheel and trying to come up with some new kind of currency, it's like, well, how do we make uh, the currencies we have work better for us? And you're focusing on the distribution part, distributing an existing currency instead of reinventing the wheel. I like that. And I think there's points of commonality. And I'm very interested to hear how this develops going forward. Yeah, as am I. I think I want to say 
I've been sort of spoiled for the regular world after spending four years on UBI totally. Like you wrap your mind around this idea that I shouldn't have to sell my labor just for the privilege of survival. I went a step further by getting lucky enough to receive funding from very wealthy people to actually run a UBI trial. And I've seen it for two and a half years before COVID, during COVID, people all over the income spectrum. And I've seen it work. Even the relatively small project we did absolutely dramatically changed people's lives. That's a drug I can't give up. And I'm not willing to wait for the government to provide more. I have very, very bold aspirations for where this could go. But even if we are a thousand users for the next five years and just sitting around with a thousand people helping each other out, that would still be tremendously worth it to me. But like any good idea, it scales pretty proportionally to the number of users. That's why our motto is strength in numbers. One of the things I want to really get people to understand and feel is the experience of how powerful we actually are if we come together along a mutual understanding with a mutual set of values and a mutual set of commitments that will back up and how much we can do. Just like the Redditors. They almost took down Wall Street, a bunch of dudes on Reddit. I don't really know who they really, yeah, well, they gave them trouble anyway. But we can do so much more. People talk about taxing the ultra wealthy to fund a UBI or do all these. There's actually not enough money there. They're way too damn rich and there's way too much inequality. But a system like this can show that even without doing anything like super high wealth taxes and even with just a regular, simple run of the mill tax on income that we all share, we can actually significantly lift up the prosperity of the group. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Conrad. I think this is an important discussion to be having. And if anyone's interested in checking out Comingle, you can go to comingle.us. That's spelled exactly the way you think it is. It's not actually spelled the way a lot of people would think it's spelled because uh, oh, it's not. There's, there's a word commingle that in the actual dictionary that has two M's and one M is like the alternate version. I think that's kind of accepted. Oh, it's sort of sort of a play on a word. But if you say commingle rather than commingle, hopefully they'll get it. Okay. So next week, we have economist Karen Helvig-Peterson joining us to discuss some monetary theory ideas and her skepticism of basic income.